Screwtape is, read, is writing letters to Wormwood and how to tempt a human soul. The purpose of this study is to, to um, open your eyes and your heart and your perception and your uh, understanding of the world to understand and begin to appreciate spiritual warfare. Has anybody ever heard that expression before? Spiritual warfare, what does it mean? It means uh, that the world that we live in is not all there is. That there are, in fact, angels and demons. I'll get to that in a minute. There is good and evil. They are real things. And we're going to talk about that brief briefly today. And I just want to introduce you, literally introduce you to the concept and idea of spiritual warfare. Because this is Lent, right? And we are all called as Christians to be uh, mindful that we are not fighting against, as Paul says, flesh and blood, but principalities and powers. Does that make sense? The world will make a lot more sense to you when you understand that what you, there's more to it than meets the eye. Okay. Other thing, too, I want you to understand is that uh, the, the point of this story is pastoral. So I'm a pastor. I, many of you are members of my parish. The point of the screw tape letters is pastoral. What does that mean? My goal as a pastor is to help you grow in your love and trust in Jesus Christ. Amen? So to teach you what it means to be a better Christian. And the way you learn to be a better Christian is by learning the life that Christ calls you to be. So we're going to talk about demons and angels a little bit today. We're going to get into spiritual warfare a little bit. We're going to get into evil and good and all these things. Um, but my primary motive in this is not a Bible study, although we're going to do that a little bit. It's more pastoral, and that is for your Lenten discipline, how does this book help you become a better Christian? Okay? I would actually love to do this book a lot slower than we're going to do it, but time being what it is, that's our, that's our situation. So, a little background on the book. Uh, the book is written by C.S. Lewis. He, he wrote this book, if you don't know this, right after, right during World War II. So, if, if you don't know, Lewis is an Englishman. He's an Anglican, Church of England. C.S. Lewis's brother, whom I don't know his name, was actually in the Battle of Dunkirk. You know that story? The Germans had just about conquered France. They finally did. But there was a little uh, enclave of Brits that were sort of sequestered in this area called Dunkirk, and they were rescued by flotilla of civilian boats, basically, that went across the pond, uh, ran across the channel, and picked these soldiers up and brought them back out of the clutches of the Nazis. The reason I'm telling you that is Lewis uh, saw, like most Englishmen did at the time, that the Nazis had just rolled Western Europe, Poland, and all that, and the, the propaganda coming out of the Third Reich was persuasive. We have to all agree. We can look back on it now at 60 years uh, after, the day, after the fact and go, oh, those Nazis were evil. And I'm not, I'm not supporting Nazism. What I am saying is that large parts of the world fell under the sway of Nazi ideology. And so Lewis, when this Dunkirk thing happened and Britain thought that they were just gone and done for, Lewis found himself, his heart, actually beginning to be persuaded and he's an intellectual. He's an Oxford Don. C.S. Lewis is no intellectual dummy. And he was a Christian. And he started to feel the impact of this Nazi um, propaganda and thought, my gosh, this is, this is demonic. And that's why he wrote the book. So he wrote the book to try to explore what it means to how, the, how demons influence human behavior. Does that make sense, everybody? You all clear on that? Okay, so that's where he's coming from. And if you know, he didn't write it in this book, but elsewhere he said that writing this book, the Screwtape Letters, was like chewing, I love this image, chewing glass. And the reason is because C.S. Lewis is a Christian. And to write a book where the protagonist is a demon and everything is backwards was for him not an easy thing to do. He did it more as a matter of he felt called to do it and he felt urged to do it, but it was not a pleasant experience for him. And so Lewis admits this. And if you read the preface to the book, he's, he talks about that a little bit. The whole book is this, screw tape, senior demon writing letters, the screw tape letters, to a junior demon named Wormwood. That Wormwood has been given a new patient. The patient is a human soul. And the human soul, he's never named. It's a he, we know that. This young man is never named. We know he's military age, so he's probably 20-ish. I mean, it's fiction, but the idea is this, this young man was in the age of being conscripted and eventually goes into the British uh, military forces. So Screwtape is writing a letter to Wormwood, who's been given the charge to tempt a human soul. All the letters are one way, screw tape to Wormwood. They all start off with this phrase. Who knows what it is? My dear Wormwood. 
right? Which actually, <laughs> it's a, again, is loaded, loaded language. My dear Wormwood, and you never actually hear the other way. You never hear Wormwood to Screwtape. You have to infer what that is based upon what Screwtape says. So let's talk a little bit about angels and demons, shall we? Because we're going to be talking about that a lot for the next seven weeks. Angels and demons, real or, real or not real? real? Real. At least according to Jesus, they're real. Uh, and so if you believe that Jesus tells the truth, which I presume you all do, or at least you think you do, if Jesus tells the truth, he, he believes that demons and angels are real beings. He casts them out. He talks about them a lot, both angels and demons. He spends a lot of time casting them out of people. And so the Bible presumes that angels and demons are, good, are, are real beings. Now, let me just pause and explain this. This is not in the screw tape letters. This is, uh, comes from elsewhere. Angels and demons are created beings. So, for example, there's God, right? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as the Christian understanding of God, the biblical understanding of God. God was, uh, was never created. He is eternal. At some point, he decided to create you and me and the creation. He also created other beings, which we would call angels, right? Enhalas in Greek. Angels are created beings. They are created beings like you and I are. So angels are not many gods. They are not eternal. Okay, let me just be clear about this because people misunderstand this frequently. Angels are not eternal. They are created beings. They are spiritual beings. They're not physical like you and I are. They, uh, they are not omniscient. Demons do not know your thoughts, nor do angels. They are not omniscient. They cannot see the future. Well, that's kind of a loaded question. Angels and demons, the one difference between them and you, and this is a big, big difference between you and an angel, two things. First of all, Scripture says that you and I, as human beings, are created in God's image, which is what C.S. Lewis thinks is why demons hate humans in the first place, right? That's a matter of debate, but that's Lewis's position. And we, as human beings, are created in God's image. And secondly, this is really important, angels do not inhabit time. Does that make sense? They are they're pure spirit, right? So to be in time means you have to be physical, right? Once you're, when you're not physical anymore, if you die, your spirit goes to heaven. You're no, no longer in time, right? The definition of time is that you can change. You, am I getting too heady on you? So angels are atemporal. They are, they are not omniscient. They are not omnipotent, right? They are limited beings, what they know and can do. But they are atemporal, meaning that they experience all of time simultaneously, unlike you and I. The one difference between you and I is that you and I can change. Angels and demons cannot because they're not in time. Let me explain to you why, that, why I'm telling you all that. The reason I'm telling you that is because we know that angels, demons are fallen angels. And if you don't believe me, Jesus says, this is actually wild stuff. He said, well, where, is all this, where do these demons come from? In, they show up in Genesis chapter 2, right? The, the serpent in the garden. Where are they before that? Well, Jesus actually says in uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 18, Jesus says, I saw Satan falling from the sky. Now, think about that for a second. Here's a guy, here's a Jewish, itinerant Jewish preacher from the second century or first, first century AD saying that before time even began, he saw Satan falling from the sky. Most theologians would say this, at the moment of creation, right, whether you want to call it the Big Bang or whatever you want to say, at the moment that God created stuff, right, in the beginning, an arche is the Greek, at that moment, time begins. Time does not, exi time does not exist before creation. Nothing else exists before creation except for God. The moment of creation, angels and demons, or angels are created, right? You with me? Mm -hmm. Okay. Since they lack time, they cannot change. At the very moment of their creation, they would have decided to rebel or not, and they would have been completely damned or not at that moment, because they can't repent. They can't change, unlike you and I. So people say, well, can't, how can demons be damned forever? How can they be evil forever? How could that possibly happen? Because they made the decision as atemporal beings at the moment of their creation to turn away from God, right? To turn away from God, pride, just like Adam and Eve in the garden. Adam and Eve, though, can repent because they are physical beings and they're in time. Angels and demons have a, um, the angels fall, become fallen angels. Jesus says this, I saw Satan falling out of the sky. 
And these fallen angels are the ones which now um, affect us today. We call them demons, we call them devils, and so forth. The point I want you to see here, though, this is actually very, very important. That is where Satan in the Garden of Eden comes from. It's, it's a, it, the, the whole event occurs before Genesis chapter 1. And secondly, or somewhere in between Genesis 1, the creation, and, and Genesis 2, it's not, de not described in there per se. But the second thing I want you to understand here, this is really, really, really important. There is God, right? Okay? The big G. That's a G, by the way. There are angels, and there are demons. And there are angels and fallen angels. Demons are fallen angels, essentially, right? And then there's us. Well, there's me and you. Okay? So the point I want you to see here is that angels or demons are not God's opposite. Does that make sense? In other words, God has complete authority over all creation, including demons. You know, when, 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 the, uh, when the Gerasene demoniac comes to Jesus when he gets out of the boat, and the, the Gerasene demoniac, and Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this, the Gerasene demoniac, a man possessed by a demon, says, I know who you are. And if you don't know this, in the first century, to call someone's name is an assertion of power over them. This demon is trying to assert power over Jesus. And Jesus says, literally, shut up and come out of him. And he pulls the demon out of this man. Actually, legion. Hundreds of them. The point I want you to see here, this is really important. Demons are not God's opposite. They are angels' opposites. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. So, they, so the angels and demons are contradictory. They're the same species, if you will, but they're good at fallen or non-fallen. The reason I'm telling you that is we know a couple of them by name. Okay? There are four angels listed in, the new, in Scripture. Michael, Michael, which means one who is like God. The word El at the end of a word means, that's one of the words for God, Elohim. So Michael means one who is like God. Raphael, Gabriel, Gabriel, and Uriel. There's four. There's also a couple of angels we know about, in, in, in fallen angels in, the, in Scripture. We know about uh, Lucifer, right? And then we hear another term here, which you've probably heard before. And the word, I'm going to write, I'm gonna write the Greek word in satanas in English. Hasatanas, Satan, we call him, right? That's not, actually not a proper name. There are some demons, some of the demons have proper names, Lucifer being one. Lucifer means the being of light. So by the way, demons are not ah, scary. They're actually attractive, which is the problem. <laughs> but the word Satan, which we're going to talk about a little bit here, and this is actually where this book comes in. Satan, Hasatanus, uh, means the adversary. Okay? The Hasatanus means the adversary in Greek. What that means is this. Anybody here a lawyer? Okay? I'm not saying you're, I'm not going to go there. No, no. <laughs> Don't go. When you, okay, anybody ever seen, um, I don't know, uh, Law and Order or a TV show with Law, you know, like, I don't know, a TV show where you got a legal proceeding going on, right? And a person's on the stand, All right? Right, Judge? You know this. Person is on the stand. And who is the person who, so say I'm on the stand, right? I'm a, I'm an, and I'm accused of a crime or I'm pleading guilty. Who is the person who tries to convict me? What's that person called? The prosecuting attorney, that is that word. So Satan, Satan is not a big scary monster thing. Satan is your adversary. The person, the being who is trying to prosecute you on the stand and, not, and, and trip you up like a, good, like a good prosecutor does. A prosecutor's job is to convince you that you're guilty, right? Or convince the jury, right? What, the, what Satan is, is the being, a fallen angel, who is there to not, is not God's adversary, he's yours. And that's crucially important because, you see, when you appeal to God to help you, you're not appealing to f equal forces. You're appealing to God who is completely authoritative over all beings. Is that clear? Any questions on this? I'm getting kind of heady on you, but we've got to know the backstory before we dive into all this stuff because it's not in the book. Any questions on this so far? Nothing? Yes? Why would they? Well, that's a good question. What, the, okay, so the question is, why would angels fall in the first place? We don't know. Remember, Scripture doesn't say, but I will say this. Why do human beings fall in, in Genesis chapter 2? What's the, what's, the, what's the root of all sin? Pride. Wanting to be like God. And so C.S. Lewis later on in the book, we'll get to this, he says, screw tape refers to humans as those hairless bipeds. 
And the ones that want those, those hairless bipeds in whom God created in his image. Just loathing. And, and actually, and we'll get into all this, that we don't actually know why they fell, but it has to be somewhere in their pride. Either wanting to be, not wanting to be second fiddle to God, right? Which is what, why humans fell. It's why you fall too, and me too. Uh, but also maybe out of, maybe out of anger that, uh, that uh, God created us in the first place in his image. Good question. But the thing too, and, and if you notice on the uh, handout there, on the, um, one, of these, one of these here, there's the, the syllabus. There is a, and we'll pray this at the end, there's a prayer which you can use or not. It's up to you. A prayer of, to St. Michael the Archangel, which I pray regularly. St. Michael the Archangel is the prince of the angels. He is the one who is typically portrayed with a sword or a spear. And he is the one who is the one who is the primary defender of human beings against demonic forces. So the prayer to St. Michael, which we'll read at the end, um, talks about asking St. Michael to defend us in battle. Yes, Don. We often refer to the devil or Satan. Are you suggesting it's more of a spiritual I'm saying both. So the question is, we refer to devil, the devil or Satan. What, I'm, what, I would, what scripture would say uh, is that there are more than, there's many. And probably, and again, it doesn't say this anywhere in scripture, but probably in screw tape anyway, in this book, there's one assigned to you and me. And, and by the way, scripture also, we'll get to this, also claims that there's an angel assigned to you also. We call them guardian angels. But script, the Psalms, Psalm 19 says, he will give his angels charge over you. And the word there, you, is singular. One on each shoulder. Yeah, could, well, could be one on each shoulder. But the point being, so your point is, we refer to Satan. Satan is, a, is, an, is uh, the adversary. It's a generic term for demon. Uh, the only named demon that I know of in scripture would be probably Beelzebub, Lucifer, and is there any others? Some of, the, some of the other pagan gods, when the Israelites are conquering lands that refer to like Magog and things, they, Jews just assume they were demons. Good question. Does that answer your question? Yep. Okay. Quick. You, you Paul. said before the angels can't read our minds. So when we say that St. Michael's prayer, does that mean we need to say it out loud? Say, uh, say angels are not omniscient. So whether an angel can uh, hear your thoughts, if you direct them to him, I haven't the foggiest idea. I would say, say them out loud if you're not sure. I don't know. But they're not omniscient. That I can tell you. So an angel does not know your thoughts, thoughts neither does a demon. Now they can look at you, kind of like, you know, you can meet somebody, right? You, you all do this all, every day. You meet somebody and you kind of feel them out. You know a person by looking at their body language, what they're like, right? And if you can sort of follow them all day long and see what they're doing, you can begin to figure people out. So when Screwtape is counseling Wormwood on how to tempt a human patient, right, don't assume that, the, that Wormwood knows what the man's thoughts are because he doesn't. He's observing and he's going, well, I got an idea. Okay? All right. Uh, that's pretty much what I want to say about that. And then... Um, uh, let me say a couple of just scriptures here. First of all, uh, St. Peter says, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, quoting from St. Peter, he says the following words. He says, be sober-minded, which means be serious. This is serious business. Be, be, seri be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, Hasatanas, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by our brotherhood throughout the world. So friends, all I'm trying to say, what I want to impart to you is just the seriousness of what we're talking about and the battle to which we are called. And I also want to share something with you personally, which is why we're doing this study. When I read this book the first time, in case you don't know this, I was 26 years old, 25 years old, wasn't even married yet. And I was in my, in my apartment and I just started going to church and I just kind of heard the gospel sort of for the first time in my life. And I'd always sort of thought, well, I'll just be a good person and I'll work hard and I'll, Jesus will love me and Jesus is a nice person. And I'll be nice to people and I'll just be nice and that'll be great. That was my concept of Christianity, right? It's naive. I read this book and when I finished this book, I put it down. I, I, I can remember this like it was yesterday. I put this book on my chest and I said, Lord, I can't possibly do this. 
Because when you read this book, you're going to realize the devil is always a step ahead of you. That's part of the book here. I said, Lord, I can't possibly do this. And he said to me, that's the point. The reason I'm showing you this book is to make you... And and actually, this is just the problem. The, the, The solution to the problem is the grace of Jesus Christ. See, the point is, when I said, Lord, I can't do this, he said, that's exactly the point, Rodriguez. You can't do it on your own, which is why I died on the cross to save you. Does that make sense? So the God, this really, this book for me, why it's a really good Lenten book, I, I think, and why it's a good book in general, is because it teaches us to realize our limitations. It teaches us to acknowledge that we are sinners, that we're broken, and that we need to be saved. Let me talk about that for a second. Uh, when I say you're a sinner, does that make you angry? No. Does it make you go, oh, I don't, I, when I was younger, it made me mad. Who, how dare you call me a sinner? I'm a nice person. Now, Lee Rogers is another matter, but, <laughs> but I'm a pretty good guy, right? You know? I'm just, play, I'm just playing, Lee. What does, it mean to, what does it mean to say, some of you who are, um, have been at this for a while, what does it mean to say that you're a sinner? Is that a, is that a judgment? Is it, or what is it? It's, what's that? It's a, it's a fact. What does it mean? What does it mean? We're fallen. What does that mean, Bruce? What does it mean to say you're fallen? We sin, right? So we, it means, let me, we can't, we can't, Marty nailed it. We can't follow God perfectly. We can't do, we can't do it, right? We're sinners. There's an old expression. You're not a sinner. This is actually um, I think Martin Luther might have come up with this. You're not a sinner because you sin, which is what most people think. You sin because you're a sinner. Does that make sense? In other words, you are a fallen. You know the old commercials, I've fallen and I can't get up? Remember those? That's the situation. And I recoiled from that until I read this book and I was like, holy smokes, that's true about me. And, and the, the, the beauty, though, is not that. The beauty is that Jesus says, okay, now that, you, now that you realize you need me, now I can save you. Does that make sense? This is a, so that's, that's the purpose of this whole book, is just to help you see the brokenness in your own life and the brokenness of people around you. It actually makes you a lot more tolerant and patient of other people when you recognize we're all just a bunch of fallen train wrecks trying to make the best we can by the grace of God. Does that make sense? Okay. Any questions? Then we're going to move on. Yes, Janie Binion. You said, I believe, an angel uh, omniscient. Correct. And demons are God. Correct. How do they know exactly when I'm creeping in? Because I believe that all discouragement is demonic. Great point. So Janie said, if angels and demons are not omniscient, how do they know when to come creeping in because, they, because all discouragement is demonic? I, I agree with you 100%. All, all discouragement is demonic. All disease is, is demonic. All human defu- dysfunction is demonic at its root. How do they know? Because they are not omniscient, but they are present. And they can see. They watch you. They watch you, Janie Binion. That's true. It's the truth. You may not like it. I'm just telling you what Scripture says about it. So, but anyway, quick, real quick. Yes. Yeah. Um, the regenerate believer still has the sin nature in his That's right. So I think a lot of times we get bogged down thinking the devil is attacking us when it's just us falling back into our sin nature and not relying on the Holy Spirit. So I think we have to be careful that everything that we think is that action is a result of yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure I would cut that onion too tightly because I would say, I would say the fact that you get knocked off your game as a believer is demonic. It's it's demon, It's it's influenced by evil. I mean, it's influenced by our fallen human nature. It's influenced by the demonic activity in our lives. So I, I'm not sure. I hear what you're saying, Jim. I'm not sure that I'd go too narrow on that because I don't think you can really cut that too too thinly. I hear what you're saying. I mean, I would, I would say, though, as a regenerate Christian, maybe this is a better way to put it, Jim. I don't want to put words in your mouth. But as a Christian, you don't have to really, you have to, you can see what's happening to you and you can acknowledge what's happening to you and kind of not fear it. Does that make sense? Like you, you will, rec- when, I mean, I can tell you in my own life when things are going on, I'm like, oh, here we go. Here comes the attack. Right, seriously. And I know something big, something great's about to happen because the devil's all over me. 
Anyhow, let's move along. So, yes. Can the devil take human forms? Uh, yes. Sure. The devil can possess people. That's extremely... By the way, this is another whole... I don't want to get in this rabbit trail, but... Uh, the demons can possess people. It's extremely rare. Uh, I have, well, I don't get into all that. Uh, I've never done an exorcism, but I've, minor exorcisms, yes, but major exorcism where someone's actually, their faculties are taken over by a demon. I've never seen that personally. I have, I've seen many examples of people who are influenced by the demonic who have been liberated from that. But I've never met somebody who, right, I've never met somebody whose faculties were completely like the exorcist kind of thing. I've never seen that before. But it is, it does exist. I, my, I've told you before, my, uh, my priest, who was my um, counselor in seminaries, was Don Gross. He was a psychotherapist and a priest and the diocesan exorcist. And uh, he was my counselor. And he said, yep, Rodriguez, you got the big guns. The bishop gave you the big guns. <laughs> and, I, and I asked him once, I said, Father, how do you know? This is the, and this, his answer was fantastic. I said, he's a psychi psychologist. I said, how do you know when it's demonic and not just psychological illness? And you know what he said to me? You just know. And I said, can you give me an example? And he says, I'm not going to talk about it. I don't want you interested in such things. Great, which is why I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Know your enemy. Know it's there. Know it's present. But don't worry about it. Don't get to, and in fact, I'm gonna, that's actually my next point. In the preface, this is beautiful. In the preface of the book, script, uh, uh, Lewis says this. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased by both errors. That's great stuff. <laughs> right? So I would just say to you, kind of like know what's there, know the source, and be aware of it, but then also know where your, where your solution comes from. So y'all ready to dive into the book? All right, so we're going to look at chapter one. I'm going to just going to do a couple things, and I've got some questions. We're going to, we can have a little bit of discussion here. I'm going to try to keep a timeline. Let me go over just a couple of points, and then I'm going to read some comments, and we'll go do some questions. Um, letter number one. Wormwood is told by Screwtape not to be overly concerned about argument. He says, don't be overly concerned about his materialistic friends. Don't be overly concerned about arguing your point, Wormwood. Because he says, uh, jargon, it is jargon rather than argument as a, as, a way, say, as a way to fuddle him. Right? So for example, he says, um, don't, he, says, don't let the, he says, don't let the patient focus on universal ideas. Keep him always stuck in the ordinary. And don't go into the realm of argument. Go into the realm of jargon. You with me? And the reason he says that, he says, he says uh, um, jargon not, uh, this, is, uh, this is in, by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reference paragraphs. If we're in letter one, paragraph one, paragraph two. Jargon not argument is your best ally in keeping him from the church. Don't waste your time trying to make him think that materialism is true. Make him think it is strong or stark or courageous. The trouble, here's the key point. I want to stop on this for a second. The trouble with argument, paragraph two, is that it moves the whole struggle onto the enemy's own ground. What do you think he means by that? What is the devil's, is the devil's primary method with you to convince you of something? What is his, what's his primary method? Doubt. Doubt. To fuddle, to cast, to make things seem a little bit different than you know them to be, right? So, for example, if you uh, and you, we all know this is a practical matter. Look at a uh, look at look at our culture today, right? There's a, a worldview out there right now called postmodernism. Anybody familiar with this? Postmodernism says that all truth claims are subjective, right? So there's no such thing as truth. Now think about that for a second. That is a, that is a demonic, befuddling statement. Why? If I say to you, there's no such thing as truth, is that a true statement? No. Well, if it's not, then what they say is wrong, which I agree with you, it's not a true statement. But if I'm a, if I'm a, if I'm a, um, I'm a uh, 
postmodern theologian or postmodern person, which a lot of people are. A lot of people in our culture are this way. They don't even know it. They never think far enough ahead to consider this. They say, there's no such thing as absolute truth, right? You have your truth. You hear this all the time. You've got your truth, and I've got what? My truth. But there's, we, we don't know. There's no such thing as real truth. Oh, yeah? Is that true? That's right. Jesus, that's right. So, and, and I'm going to get to that in a second. The point, that idea of demons befuddling, making things gray when they're actually logically and patently obviously not gray. If you say you've got your, there's no such thing as absolute truth, but I say that's a true statement, I've just said there's something which is absolutely true. Does that make sense? And so the whole, the whole argument unravels itself. It's demonic. Marty made a great point. When Jesus says, Jesus says, in fact, and in fact, Pontius Pilate says this when he's, when he's uh, prosecuting Jesus on the, on the stand. He says, what is truth? He dismisses the idea. And then Jesus later on says, no, no, no. Truth is not a it. It's a me. <laughs> Jesus says, I am the way and the truth. Make sense? Hitler, so, my concept, said what? The people, yeah. Morality and truth are subject to, you know, subjective uh, analysis based on what they need. That's right. So, it, so uh, he makes the point, and Mein Kampf, Hitler's Mein Kampf, he makes the point that the Volk, which is the people, of, uh, the people at large, the culture, determines essentially what's right and wrong, essentially, right? Led by the Fuhrer. Led by the Fuhrer, of course. Fuhrer. Do you know where he got that from? You guys will know this name. You know where he got that from? Yeah. Friedrich Nietzsche. <laughs> Nietzsche was the one who said, if you get rid of God, the only way you decide right and wrong is by the will to power. Who can do it? If you can do it, it's true. And it's, it's silly, because, anyway. But yes, that's what you saw. Yes, Father? I, I think it's interesting. Yeah. When we talk about church doctrine, what the church has always believed, nobody talks in terms of true or not true. They talk in terms of exclusive, harmful, intolerant, or inequitable. But those have nothing to do with whether or not it's true. Right. They're just befuddling labels that don't. That's right. And the way you know the truth is through Scripture. That's the way you know it. Right? You have to base some, your truth has to be based on something or someone, as Marty pointed out, in Jesus. Let me point out something else here. Then he goes on to say to Wormwood, you don't realize how enslaved, this is in paragraph uh, one, two, three, you do not really realize how enslaved they are, we are, to the pressures of the ordinary. And then he goes, on to, he goes on to list a story about a man who's in the British Museum. And, and let's read it here. Uh, and he said, um, uh, I once, here it is, this is in paragraph three. I love this. This is such a, a vivid image in my mind. I once had a patient, a sound atheist, who used to read in the British Museum. One day as he sat reading, I saw a train of thought in his mind beginning to go the wrong way. Screwtape says this. He's, well, he's reading a book, and he's, he can just, you can read, you can watch someone's expressions and kind of know where they're going, right? Go the wrong way. The enemy, of course, was at his elbow in a moment. Before I knew where I was, I saw my 20 years' work beginning to totter. This is awesome. Listen to this. If I'd lost my head and began to attempt a defense by argument, I should have been undone. But I was not such a fool. I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested that it was just about the time he had lunch. <laughs> the enemy presumably, this is great, the enemy presumably counterattacked and made the counter suggestion, you know how one can never quite overhear what he says to them, that, the, that this was more important than lunch. In fact, in fact, quite. Uh, at, at least I think that what must have been his line. For when I said quite, in fact, much too important to tackle at the end of a morning, the patient brightened up considerably. And by the time I had added much better to come back after lunch and go with a fresh mind, he was already halfway out the door. Do you see how subtle this is? Um, once he was in the street, the battle was won. I showed him a newsboy shouting the midday paper and a number 73 bus going past. And before he reached the bottom of the steps, I had got into him an unalterable conviction that whatever odd idea might have come up into his head when he was shut up alone with his books, a healthy dose of real life was enough to show him that all that sort of thing just couldn't be true. 
He is now safe in our Father's house. Great stuff. Anyhow, any questions on this? You know what's interesting? And, I, and I'm going to letter number two. But we have some discussion, some questions here. But one thing I, I, pointed, I want to point out in this letter, when that man, this intellectual atheist, is in the British Museum reading a book, where do you think Satan would have attacked him? Where would we think he would have attacked him? He's an intellectual in a library reading a book. Where do you think he would attack him? Intellectually, right? With argument and rationality, and Aristotle and reason and logic. He attacks his appetite. The devil will always attack you where you are weakest. Always. He's not stupid. <laughs> right? So, so let's look at it. Question number one. I got, you got your, your questions here? Um, question number one. Why is argument considered dangerous to the devil's purposes? What do you think? Linda says it awakens the reasoning. Thomas Aquinas once said, all true, Thomas Aquinas, 15th century uh, Franciscan philosopher and one of the brilliant, most brilliant minds that ever lived, said, all truth claims lead you to God. I, and I think he's right. I was, if you don't know me, and many of you don't, I was converted to Christianity by teaching uh, statistics and scientific research methodology. That's what convinced me to become a Christian. Because once you start studying science and law, you, have, you are left with an obvious conclusion that there must be a law maker. Whoa, wait a minute. There's a lawmaker. That lawmaker must be outside of time, be omniscient, omnipotent, and have created these things that we can't see. Wait a minute, that sounds a lot like this God thing I'd heard about when I was a kid. See my point? Reason and argument are not the devil's playground. It is God's way to get us to him. Question number two. Um, Screw tape gives an example of an earlier patient, uh, a sound atheist. We just talked about this. What was the person easily tempted by? We talked about that. What was he tempted by? Food, right? Is that what you would have expected? No. Let's look at, let's look at uh, who has a, a, anybody have a Bible handy with you? Um, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 through 18. Right. Yes. The 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 advantage that the enemy the advantage that God has over Satan. He says the uh, in uh, the abom the abominable advantage of God in paragraph number three. What is the abominable advantage of the Christian God over Satan? What what is the, what is Jesus' advantage? Huh? He lived the same lives as we did. He became a person. You know, Scripture says that. God preached on this last night on Ash Wednesday, that he was, um, he learned, that Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. That's astounding. Here's the creator of the universe that becomes a man, right, a human being like you, and learned how to obey by suffering. Well, that's the truth, that's true for you and me too, by the way. Uh, scripture also says that Jesus Christ, who's the God-made man, became a man, took on flesh, and, and became a human being. Scripture says in Hebrews, he was tempted in every way as you are, every single way, but did not sin. Does that make sense? Do you understand the profundity of that? When Jesus, when Jesus, is, in the, was, when Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane and he knows he's going to get nailed to a cross the next day, he's scared out of his mind, who wouldn't be? He knows it's the mission to which he's called, but he's terrified, just like you and I are, where we have to do something we know we have to do, and we're terrified. And he prays to God and says, Father, take this cup from me. The answer is what? No. My point is, Jesus has the advantage of having lived the same exact life that you live. He, scripture says, I still try to get my mind around this, he was tempted in every way as you are, but did not sin. That gives him the advantage, because he knows you personally, and he knows you experientially. He knows what it means to be a human being. He knows what it feels like to be at the funeral of his friend Lazarus, right? That is the, according to, according to Satan, that is the abominable advantage that Jesus has over Satan. Um, paragraph number four, Screwtape corrects Wormwood that their job is not to teach, but to fuddle. Can anybody think of a good fuddle for today? 
how, how, how Satan might fuddle us today? Tempt us not to come. Tempt us not to come to church? Ah, sleep in. No, God doesn't care. What's the, what is the remember the Sabbath and keep it holy? Is it second or third commandment? Fourth. Thank you, Father. The scripture says, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. That means you need to get your ass in church on Sunday. <laughs> and it's not a matter of debate. So when you get up in the morning and go, oh, I'm tired. Oh, God doesn't care. I'll go to the golf course. I'll go fishing. I'll go and I can have God on the beach. That's not what he says. What's that? That is the devil. What's another example of how God, how God might... Uh, tempt us or, or fuddle us. Anybody have anything? Yeah, Debbie. Uh, I just um, decided to give up wine for Lent. And, um, oh, that's a big deal. Yeah. <laughs> Good for you. And I went home. Um, there was still like three quarters of a bottle of wine. And I thought, well, you wouldn't want me to waste it. <laughs> <laughs> Let me re Yeah. And you're going to bring that wine with you? No. So Debbie said she gave up wine for Lent. And she got home, and there was still three quarters of a bottle of wine sitting on the counter. And she said, well, God wouldn't want me to waste it, after all. <laughs> it's so true. I mean, what, what Scripture teaches us about ourselves being, again, we would call it being a sinner. If you just stop and think about it, it is so patently obvious that what Scripture says about you and me is true. Right? The devil's awfully crafty. Is it like spinning? What's that? You spin a story like in the news. Yeah, it's like it's like spin. It's like you know, it's always you know, you know. If you look at all, if you look at all the great heresies in the church, heresy just means false teaching, right? They're never like really crazy things. They're really, really subtle, tiny changes that seem okay, but they're not. Anyhow, let's look at number two, shall we? Letter number two. So in letter number two, the patient becomes a Christian. Woohoo! Um, and, and, and Scrooge tapes counsel to Wormwood is, you know, because Scrooge, Wormwood's all upset. Oh my gosh, he's become a Christian. He's done it. And Scrooge tape says, come down, young fellow. Come down. <laughs> Remember, all the old habits. He still has all the old habits of before. Right? Mm -hmm. He says, the, devil, uh, the patient is now a Christian. The devil, the devil will try to use old habits to hinder um, hinder our lives as Christians. The church, um, the church can become a distraction. Anybody here? Uh, they, he's, Lewis uses a great illustration of the, the new Christian going to church and noticing that there's a man there with a, a squeaky shoes, I think, or an oily beard, or, and looking at these people and expecting to see people in togas and sandals, but rather seeing regular people there. And then, and it's interesting, um, Screwtape says, never mind that the person he sees Maybe a person far advanced in the enemy's service, right? But the appearances of the church for a lot of people can be a distraction, can it? And, and what makes it even worse, and if you're a member of this parish, you know that I, I beat this drum a lot. When we see Christians not acting like Christians, that can be a huge disservice to, non, to new believers. Let me give you a couple of little uh, nuggets here that he says. Um, um, hundreds of adult converts. This is paragraph one. I, I note with grave displeasure that your patient has become a Christian. That's a veiled threat, if I ever heard one. Right? Paragraph one, letter two. But you are in no need of despair, Wormwood. Hundreds of, these, hundreds of these adult converts have been reclaimed after a brief sojourn in the enemy's camp and are now with us. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. I do not, and I love this, I do not mean the church, and the church, he says, the church can be a distraction, and, and Wormwood says, I love this image, I love this image. He says, that, um, and one of our greatest allies, paragraph two, is the church itself. Do not misunderstand me. I do not mean the church as we see her, spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. I love that. That, I confess, is a spectacle which makes our boldest tempters uneasy. But fortunately, that is quite invisible to these humans. In other words, we get so, I think the letter number two, there's a lot in here. One of the big things I think we forget as Christians is we get stuck in the, 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 the things of this, this world and we forget the bigger picture. One of the reasons 
If you come to church or you know that I'm, I'm kind of a high church guy, right? I like incense. I like good music. I like liturgy. I like all of it done really well. Did I ever tell you why I like it done really well? I like all that stuff. The reason is because I believe in the church triumphant, which is the church, as he describes here, spread out through all time and place, rooted in eternity, terrible as an army with banners. That's my concept of the church. And when you have incense and chanting and music and beauty and color and all these things going, it's meant to communicate to you something far bigger than just a Bible study, right? That we are actually part of something way bigger than ourselves. And I don't even mean just worldwide. I mean throughout all time. Does that make sense? Yeah, because the mass could become like order, orderly. What's that? Ordinariness. That's right. And it's magnificent. It's a magnificent thing. When you, it's a, it's, it is the most magnificent thing in the entire planet. When you recognize that you, you know, at one point the priest consecrates the sacrament and holds it up, right? You, you've seen me do it. You've seen Father Josh do it. You've seen Father uh, Switz do it. Holds the sacrament up. And I'm, this is Jesus. Look what look what's, we're doing here. It's astounding. If you think like, man, this is not just a bunch of people standing around who maybe, you know, smell like stale red wine or have squeaky shoes or, uh, you know, maybe a little grumpy that day. We're actually, we are actually standing side by side amongst angels and archangels and all the company of heaven. We say that. Therefore, with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify thy glorious name. We're praying with the church triumphant, even in that building right there. That's a glorious image to me. How about you? Do you like that? Does that help you? I don't know. To me, it works. Um, and, then, and then he says, uh, work, and he says, work on their disappointment. How many people have joined a church and you go, I, I can't tell you how many times I've seen this. I can actually even pick them out now when I meet them. People that come here are like, yeah, we're ready to go. We want to pour this. We want to, we want to change everything. We want to get involved. Two months later, hey, have you guys seen Bob and Mary? <laughs> Man, I could, I, could, I could sniff them out before I even, they say a word to me. And I don't, I don't mean that to be critical. I just mean that some people, when they come into it, they forget that the Christian walk is a, is a journey. It's a long slog done in a, with a group of people together in community with angels and archangels and human beings. And it's a process that, that leads us through. Anybody have any observations on that? Yeah. Yeah, what do you think? I'm like you. I converted and became a Christian my 20s when I was in college. Yep. And uh, from nothing to this understanding, but it's not just intellectual understanding. And you right. probably felt this overwhelming joy. Right. But it's like an infatuation almost, like the, the finest, greatest love you've ever This is unbelievable, had. yes. I'm yeah. Overwhelmed. Yeah. But that doesn't, like, in a religion, he even uses that analogy in like a marriage or something. That's right. Uh, you meet that woman and she's the one for you, but over time, I have to figure out how to live with this and all these That's right. That's right. The Christian walk is not a, is, is a journey, and it's a journey with it is a journey with brothers and sisters in Christ, which we all are. We're all sinners, right? We're all broken in different ways, but we're called to be side by side with each other in the church, worshiping God together with angels and archangels and all the company of heaven, which includes dead people, by the way. All the company of heaven means all the people that are dead that you know and love. Guess what? They're worshiping with you at that very moment. It's incredible if you think about it. Yes, Bill, and then Muggs. I think uh, there's a modern saying now, uh, I think a lot of people do, I got this, and they're not challenged by the clergy or by the friends around them. That's right. About their faith and about what they should do. A lot of people say they've got, I've got this, and they're not being challenged, is what Bill said. I'm just giving the mics so people on the camera can hear it. Yeah. I've had people, I had somebody joined the parish not too long ago, and they did not come from a liturgical setting at all. I mean, very, very low church. I mean, evangelical, non-denom. In fact, Father Gritter, that's your background too. But, and, and when people come into it, they're like, what in the world is going on up there? Right? And I say, listen, don't worry about it. Just go with it. And like, but what are you doing? I'm like, this is not a matter of trying to intellectualize all of it. The, the preaching should always be clear and direct, and the preaching is for the people to understand, right? That's, you guys know that I preach, I don't preach overly academically, I preach like a Baptist, frankly, and like a Pentecostal. But I don't mean that, I don't mean that negatively, I just mean I preach with a lot of enthusiasm. But the liturgy itself, the reason I love liturgy is it should direct all of our attention to God, to the transcendent, right? And I hope, hopefully we do at least a, a 
a pretty good job of that. To move your heart from where, from the mundane to the transcendent. Muggs, you had an observation? Christianity is relational. Yes. Christian Muggs makes the point that I've made repeatedly here that Christianity is relational. I mean, think about it. God, the God we worship is a God of relationship, right? It's not, it's not uh, the creator, redeemer, and sanctifier, which you hear sometimes. No. The biblical God reveals himself in familiar family terms. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's a relationship, right? We are to refer to our, each other as brother and sister. You call your priest father. It's meant to be a relationship. We are, we are the body of Christ, a family. Make sense? And, and we are all called to be side by side with each other. Anyhow, any other observations about, yes, Marilyn? For some of us, the new ecumenism is, is what is the following that's, that's trying to bring the There's only one message. What do you mean by new ecumenism? Well, the new ecumenism in that we have to, uh, the Pope recently uh, said we have to, and I'm visible I'm um, now, but the Pope said, you know, we have to reach out in different ways. No, no, no. There's one message, there's one Christ. That's what now, we may have to, we may have to present. That's that right. in a different way for people to understand. Well, that, and so there, and there's a, and there's a, that's, so uh, Marilyn's point is that's, uh, that the Pope, was, I, I don't know this, um, I've never heard him say this, but I'll take your word for it. But even so, the idea here of this idea, as Christians, we are called to say there's many ways to God, right? That's not true. It can't, it can't logically be true. Either Jesus is God or he's not. Now, he may not be. That's, that's a logical possibility, but you can't be and not be at the same time, right? And so, now, there may be people that don't believe in God, that are saved by Christ in some other way. That's Jesus' problem. It's not my problem, right? If, can, can, can Jesus Christ save a, a Buddhist who died in, I don't know, ninth century in his province? I have no idea. I don't know. My job as a Christian is to proclaim the gospel, the truth of Christianity, and leave the, 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 the judging part is really a way above my pay grade, right? I, I can tell you how people are saved. I can't tell you who is. But I, but I will say this. I will say this. I think when you, again, the fuddle. We talk about how the devil fuddles. We say, well, we've got to be inclusive of all people. That is true. We as Christians are called to be reaching out to all communities. But it doesn't mean that all communities, what they teach is legitimate or are true. It's a very, very, very subtle angle, but it's a slippery slope, isn't it? The devil likes to fuddle. <laughs> I made that up, by the way. Anybody else? <laughs> yeah, Rick. Rick. Uh, along Marilyn's point, yep. uh, Connie and I watch, uh, the only thing we watch on TV is Amazon Prime. Yeah, they got some great Christian movies there. And one of them we watched was translating. And the movie starts off in, back in Rome and uh, Paul is in prison and then he, he's going to be taken out to be headed. And just as the sword comes down on the back of his neck, he wakes up, he's in his uh, robe, and he is in Rome, uh, Oregon. <laughs> and uh, so he's walking the streets and uh, this uh, truck driver picks him up. Paul can only speak Greek and he can only speak Hebrew. And uh, as the guy drives him, he takes him past a, uh, a, a campus, college campus that has uh, fraternity houses, uh, sorority housing houses, and he's looking, oh, 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 and he's getting excited. Anyhow, they take him into a fraternity house, and the guy has an app on his phone where Paul speaks Greek, and it comes out English? Yeah, anyhow, his whole point was, what was he doing there? And as the movie went on, uh, he wanted to meet with the churches. And uh, in a great stadium there, he wanted to meet with the leaders of the churches. And his point was, what you're teaching is not for me. And I started this whole thing. Yeah. And, uh, but it was, a, it was a great point of 
what is going on at different churches. Yeah, and of course the other the church that would not uh, go along with the, the others that was like a Joel Osteen church. Yeah, well, there are many church. Yeah, that, that's the big the biggest problem with Christianity is the churches. Quite frankly, right? If we don't, if, and again, it's always been this way. Again, the churches are, the church is full of sinful fallen people, including me, right? I do my best, but you know, the church fails at different part, periods of time. Right now in the West, anyway, my opinion is that the church is um, failing, but it won't always. It'll come back, probably be reinvigorated through the Africans and probably the Chinese at some point down the road. But the whole point being that the church has always kind of gone hither and yon, up and down. Our job, friends, as Christians, is not to worry about it. Our job is to be faithful, to preach the gospel, and to be clear. That's it. That's it. Let's look at letter number three here, and then we're going to wrap up, because I want to be mindful of your time. Um, letter number three, the, this new man is a Christian. He is, uh, 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 Screwtape says, remember that, these, that God allows them to go through periods of dryness, but once they come out of the period of dryness, they are far more difficult to tempt. Anybody here ever been through a period of dryness in your own life spiritually? Yes, you have. Anybody here ever been through a period of time of suffering in your own life? Yes, you have. You will. Those, God allows those to happen. He allows them to happen just like you allow your children to make mistakes when they're younger so they learn. God allows them to happen to you so you learn to trust him. That's the, I preached on this last night at Ash Wednesday. Letter number three, mutual annoyances to prevent spiritual growth. So then he moves into, okay, the man's become a Christian. Oh boy, now what are we going to do? Okay, I got an idea. We're going to work on the relationship with his mother. This is a great chapter. This young man is maybe 19 years old. He's got a mother that lives with him. God, uh, anyway, and Lewis, and I'll kind of summarize the chapter and then give you a couple of quotes. God, God gradually changes a person and during this time, Satan tries to get a foothold on what he can. Screwtapes offers four tips for mutual annoyances to occur. Anybody here married or have a family? Listen to this stuff. Keep in mind, his, he says, make sure, the, make sure the patient focuses on his inner life, not on the world which he actually lives in. Make him focus on things that are very spiritual and very, very, you know, nebulous, rather than things like his mother's arthritis, I think is what he says, right? Yeah? Make him pray for things very spiritual and nebulous rather than her, the healing of her body. He says, because what you'll get eventually is this man will begin to pray for a person who doesn't even exist. Right? A person of their own creation. Um, ignore her physical needs and only pray for things that, that she does that bug him. Anybody here ever been? I've experienced this many times in my life. I call it, uh, I call it uh, war, um, prayer, prayer wars. I don't mean prayer warrior, prayer wars. Like this. It's, it goes something like this. Well, God, I pray that you would help uh, Father Josh overcome his short temper. <laughs> and I pray, Lord, that you would help him and his generosity and his spirit of kindness towards his boss. <laughs> things, like, things like that. I'm just, I'm just playing around. But how many of us actually do that, right? We do. We pray for somebody in our life that we need. We don't actually pray for them. We pray that God would make them the person we want them to be, right? Anybody ever done that? Yes, you have. Yes, you have. Um, and and it, we, make, we use a double standard. We assume that the things we're saying, that when we say something, what we say is meant to be taken at face value. But what they say to us, there's a hidden meaning behind it all. Right? And then, um, um, and then it, the, this, this one I thought was really clever at the very end. Wormwood is told to make sure he milks, and Wormwood is told to make sure he milks any jealousy the patient's mother has about his conversion. Uh, and and, and uh, remember he says, hey, Wormwood, have you thought about this? Now that, you're, now that your patient's become a Christian and you're, you're, you're doing a good job of fostering discontent between his, the mother and son, good job, good job. Keep that friction going. Here's something you need to think about. He says, have, have, you, have, you, have you provoked the woman's jealousy that he's converted and it wasn't because of her? See how subtle that is? Man, I hope... Is this kind of re resonating with you a little bit? How subtle and how, how 
devious, literally, this, all of this is, how insidious how, how Satan works in our lives and how really kind of we can't overcome it on our own strength. Let me give you a couple of ideas here about... Um, um, let's, look at question, let's look at some questions here. Question number one for number three. Um, I'll, I'll read here. The Lord is at work changing a person from the inside out even as the devil is trying to tempt him from the outside in. This is letter number three. Wormwood, screw tape encourages Wormwood to keep the patient focused on his, on his inner life and not the practical matters of love and self-sacrifice. Mutual annoyances and habits can be used to great effect by the devil to sow discord amongst people. I'll tell you what, as a rector of a parish, that is a true statement. Uh, here's a quote. You must bring to a condition, him to a, the patient to a condition in which he can practice self-examination for an hour without discovering any of those facts about himself which are perfectly clear <laughs> to anyone who has ever lived with him. <laughs> if you know me, you know that I, I speak pretty plainly. And the reason I do it is because I think Christians have a, we have a, we have a tendency to over-spiritualize our faith. I was just talking with somebody about this yesterday. We over-spiritualize it. And, I'm, and I, don't mean, I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean, I don't mean that in a trivial way. I mean that we make it all about uh, spiritual things and rather than the practicality of being, be nice to people, be kind, speak truth, be honest, right? Earthy things. Christianity is earthy, if anything. Um, and what, and and what, what uh, Screwtape is trying to encourage women to do is make it all very ethereal, make it all very, very out there. Um, who has a scripture here? Read Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Anybody have a Bible on them? Okay, good. Much good, Paul. Read it. Uh, it basically, was take heed of the doctrine in you. Do not be conformed to the world. There was another quote I looked up. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformed by your mind. Yeah, okay. Understand the will of God. Right. Romans chapter 2 do not, be do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Okay? Um, that's how God works. God works from the inside out. It, your conversion is gradual. Some people have great big conversion experiences, right, where it's like, bah, and, they, and it just hits them all at once. For me, it was much more of a gradual process. But the idea of being saved and getting it when it clicks, and the idea of growing in your faith, the growing in your faith is always gradual. God is working on you from the inside out, even while Satan and demons and people around you are working from the outside in. Does that make sense? It's a spiritual war. And if you, have any, if you have any introspection at all in your life, you know that that's true. You, anybody here ever, uh, ever do something? Or every once in a while, you, come, like you meet an old friend you went to high school or college with, and you begin to like sort of you know, talk about stuff. And they say, hey, you want to go and do X, Y, Z? Or hey, what about this? Something that you used to really love to do. And then they bring it up, and you think, man, I don't want to do that anymore. <laughs> ever happen to you? Happens to me a lot, actually. <laughs> and, uh, not so much, I mean, people that I went to school with, high school and college, college in particular with, you know, it's like, you know, you know, what, you know why? Because I've been transformed. I'm being transformed from the inside out. The things that used to appeal to me no longer do. And that the, that the, the things that I used to like to do, I no longer like to do anymore. Anybody here ever had that experience? I hope so. That means you're growing. And in fact, anybody here ever have somebody say to you, uh, maybe one of your non-believing friends or somebody you've not seen in a while, and they say, hey, you know, you're different. Have you heard that before? I don't mean different like weird. I mean, you're like, something about you, which is, you're, not, you're different than you were before. That's a good thing. That means God's changing you. It's gradual. You can't always see it. You cannot always see it in your own heart, but other people can see it in you. Any observations there? All right. Um, Anybody have any, any observations or questions on that? I'm going to wrap up. I think it's five, 11 after 5. Any questions about this so far? We only did uh, letters 1, 2, and 3. We'll do uh, next week. We will do, um, uh, we will do uh, 4, 5, 6, 7, and 8. Yeah, right. We'll try. <laughs> it's a lot. I mean, I, this is really kind of a ridiculous thing to do. Can I let me, let me kind of circle back and say this? My intention with this class is not to teach you an exhaustive account of the screw tape letters. My intention of this class is to kind of give you a very high-level primer of what's going on. Because this, this is a book, in my opinion, you can read over and over and over and over again and get something different out of it every time. Has anybody felt that as, you, as you've read through this? 
You've read it four times? Just the first four. The first four chapters four times? Yeah. It's a lot in there. It's not a hard read, but when you begin to see, the one, the one overarching thing I want you to see here. No, 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 I agree. Well, it's, it's a it's, You miss a lot. There's a lot in there. One thing I'll show you too, and I'll show you another kind of uh, thing which I'd never thought about until this study. Notice that Lewis is talking about spiritual warfare, and he's talking about it in the context of World War II. And interesting, did you notice at the very beginning of the book when he says uh, that screw tape is completely unconcerned about World War II? Like we would all think, oh my gosh, this is so horrible, it's terrible. He's like, yeah, this is what humans do. He sees the big picture. So anyway, my point again is not to lecture on this in, in, in real, um, in, in a lot of detail, but rather just to give you a high level view and hopefully have you guys reread it, uh, go back, circle back and reread it again. So next week, uh, chapters four through eight, uh, by way of reminder, we will uh, walk the Stations of the Cross immediately after this is concluded in the chapel, if you'd like to go do that. If you've never done Stations of the Cross before, I encourage you to, can, to think about that. Stations of the Cross, if you don't know what that is, it's when you, there are 12 plaques, 13 plaques in the chapel that are places in Christ's walk from, um, to the, from, from the, uh, when he is condemned to Golgotha and then put in the tomb. There's 12 locations on the Via Dolorosa in Jerusalem and those, 12, those places are marked in the chapel and we walk through that and kind of meditate on it as we go. So that's in the chapel in about two minutes. So before you go, uh, we're done, but before you go, we're going to pray. Is that okay? I'm going to pray. Um, Prayer. This is the prayer. Um, we're going to pray. I'm going to pray extemporaneously. Then I'm going to pray the, Saint Mike, the prayer to St. Michael the Archangel. And then we can wrap up. Um, let us pray. Lord God, we thank you for this opportunity to come together as the body of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for, for C.S. Lewis, for his ministry, for his, his, his wisdom and his insight. And we thank you, Lord, for Jesus who died to save us from all this mess and to give us courage even in the midst of struggles that we face in our lives daily. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, Prince of the heavenly host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all evil spirits who prowl the world seeking the ruin of souls. Amen.